What is going on, almost canon listeners, you almost canonites and almost canoners, and everybody in between? It is me, your host, with the most, Nicholas Willard. Thank you. Thank you. Like I said, no applause needed. It's just me. I am but a humble servant. And I'll leave it at that. Well, it's been an exciting few days here in Vermont. Uh, an exciting week in the news of lost treasures. So, where are we going to start? Well, I'm going to start a little bit closer to home. Uh, a few days ago, let's see here. Let's see if I can get a date. A date on this. Hmm. So this would have been... Uh, Monday, I believe, the 24th, a fishing guide company out there on Lake Champlain. He's like a, an outfitter. He got a picture of what looks to be Champ, like on his fish finder. A picture on his fish finder that appears to be Champ. And when I say appears to be, I mean, it looks like Champ. You can see like the head, the neck, the body. Uh, what looks to be four flippers and a long tail. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. You can, you can, I'm not saying anything. I know you can, you know, you can do a lot with AI technology and, and all these conflabbed computer programs out there. But I mean, if this is a real image from a fish finder, then there's something down there. I mean, but quite frankly, I'm a fan of the giant eel theory. Um, if you go back in the history books, even uh, Loch Ness, definitely here on Lake Champlain before, you know, the surgeon's photo appeared in what, like the 1920s or, or something like that. You know, all these lake monsters, they were all referred to as sea serpents, serpents. They were long, no flippers, no legs, no arms. They were serpents. They were like eels, giant eels. Um, and then the surgeon photo comes around and this plesiosaur theory comes into play. Um, and you got the Mansi photo with the what looks to be a long neck. The Mansi photo is a, a famous, you know, a lot of scientists, a lot of cryptozoologists and a lot of people who look at, you know, look into the, this kind of stuff. Say the Mansi photo is the best picture ever taken of a sea monster or a lake monster and one of the best uh, pictures ever taken of a cryptozoological creature. What could be a, a, a cryptozoological creature? Um, and we don't have to get into the Mansi photo because we're talking about Thurber's uh, sonar ping. And I'll post a picture of this. It it looks, and I have posted a picture of this on the Almost Canon Facebook page. And it looks, it looks like, I'm just going to go out and say it looks like a plesiosaur. So I don't know. Uh, I haven't talked to the guy. I sent an email to him. I'm sure I won't hear back from him. But I mean, there's a there's like a little article here from Katie Elizabeth. She's founder, CEO and president at Champ Search. 
founder, director, CEO at International Dracontology Alliance, uh, U.S. ambassador at Center for Fortean Zoology, and so on and so on. So she's definitely a champ researcher, and she has made contact with Scott. And let's see. Uh, let's see what he has to say. He sent her a, he sent her a message and says, Hello, hello, Katie. Yes, it was a very bizarre return on my Garmin. We had just caught a lake trout jigging. I looked at the Garmin, and the object was coming across the screen. Took a screenshot of it after noticing its shape, which resembled champ. I can't explain what it actually is. I know it's not the normal shape of bait balls on which I see daily. I was on a spot lock, so the boat was moving. Uh, there was a large school of bait fish approximately 100 yards off my bow that lake trout were feeding into. There were also over 100 cormorants and three loons feeding into that bait ball. Maybe Champ was on his way to that bait ball for a snack. And then Katie's little, little Facebook post here says he noted that he was stunned at seeing my sonar readings and how close the shape was. Well... I don't know. He goes on to say that that apparently he's got a follow up video. But so it sounds like. You know, as this thing's going across the screen, he gets a screenshot of it. And this picture is damn well center screen. So, I mean. I don't know. I don't want to doubt the guy because his story rocks. And I truly believe that there's some sort of mysterious creature in the lake. But. This is a damn good bit of promotional evidence for anybody who has a fishing business um, or for anybody who is an outdoor guide on Lake Champlain like Scott. So who knows? Uh, but damn, this is this is good. This is cool. I can't wait to see, you know, this follow up video. I wish I could hear more from him. I want to hear him tell his story. Uh, I know last year I was able to get a hold of this other guy who was on vacation with his kids and had this mis this creek. I don't know what it was. It was a great video. I wish I could find it again. It It's in the lake and you can see it. It's like coming through the water towards them, making this huge wave uh, and then swims off. And I talked to that guy and that was, that was an incredible sighting. Uh, there was definitely something large in the lake swimming uh i was right around this time last year so if you want to if you want a chance at seeing champ then you should probably hit lake champlain around this time uh beginning of august end of july so that was the first exciting thing that popped up on my news radar the second thing this little treasure that was found here in the United States that has got that has been coined pun intended the great Kentucky coin hoard like this is nuts this guy an unidentified this this is an article from the Smithsonian magazine uh and it's titled trove of 700 civil war era gold coins discovered in Kentucky Kentucky an unidentified man found the cache, which may have been buried ahead of a Confederate invasion in a cornfield earlier this year. 
So I guess he he found the coins earlier this year. Not necessarily this week, this past week. But, uh, you know, this is the kind of stuff that people find in, in you know, Great Britain or, or you know, I don't know, something that's usually associated with, with, with uh, you know, Vikings or, or like, like Queen Boudicca or something, you know, you know, this is not necessarily something you find in the United States every, every, every day. You know, this is something that you last, the last coin hoard I heard about was one that, that was like 2009 or 2010, where a couple of people in, in California just happened to come across, you know, a couple mason jars full of, of like double eagles or something. But, uh, yeah, we rarely hear about these giant coin hoards and they have a picture of it on this Smithsonian magazine and it's it's impressive. Uh I read let's see here. Uh this is a quote from the Smithsonian magazine which is um written by Milan Soli. Let's see. Per a statement quote per a statement from government.com the dealer selling the so-called Great Kentucky Hoard, the coins date to between 1840 and 1860. They include $10 gold coins featuring a bust of Lady Liberty, rare $20 gold Liberty double eagles minted in 1863, and $1 coins known as uh, Indian Princess dollars. So this is uh, an authentic coin hoard. And and I, I read that you know, it was found in Kentucky, which was a, a neutral uh, state during the Civil War. When people hear about Civil War treasure, they often think of the Knights of the Golden Circle, um, who were known to have just collected all the all the valuables, all the silver, all the gold, you know, even silverware, silver spoons and forks and indefinitely all the coinage. Um from everyone within the the Confederacy towards the end there, and they would collect it into these huge hordes, and they these knights of the Golden Circle would go around and bury these hordes in certain locations, you know, for when the South rose again, uh, and they were going to use this money to fund, you know, the Second Civil War, and they even wanted to invade Mexico and parts of the the Caribbean, you know, some of the Caribbean islands, and that's why it was called the Golden Circle because they were going to. They were going to inhabit this this entire area and there was going to be this this giant empire run on slave labor and these crazy bastards. But uh, but yeah, so whenever you hear about these these Silver War era, you know, treasures being found, and especially ones that involve gold, gold coins, you ought, I at least me and I know many others, they they automatically think of of the Knights of the Golden Circle. And this this article goes on to say how someone would have, they believed that somebody had buried this treasure ahead of a Confederate uh, invasion. So there was a battle, imminent battle, and they wanted to, you know, they didn't want the Confederates getting a hold of their money, so they buried it. Uh, I don't know why they didn't redig it at the end of the, the war. It, it doesn't make sense to me. It, it to me, it sounds like this was a Knights of the Golden Circle horde that somebody forgot. I know Jesse James was out in this area. Let's see. Kentucky, surrounded by West Virginia, Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, 
uh, Missouri, Arkansas, Tennessee. So, yeah, I mean, you could definitely, it definitely looks like the eastern, I guess it'd be the, the southeastern tip of Missouri connects to Kentucky. Um, so who knows? I don't know. Maybe maybe this is a Jesse James treasure. I don't know. I, I highly doubt it. But it. Ugh, whenever I hear about gold coins and the Civil War, it just I just want to scream KGC. But yeah, so it's exciting. I mean, this guy. He's, I read that he uh he he sold this this hoard of coins for uh over a million dollars. So good for him. I hope he kept some. It'd be a great, you know, inheritance, you know, fair family heirloom, all that good stuff. Uh, but yeah, so that was really the only news I had. Uh, two pretty exciting events, articles. Um, and then we have, uh, I have a special guest tonight. Joseph Citro, he's going to be on to again to talk about his his re-release of his first ever novel, Lake Monsters. Now, it's not his first published work, but it is his first written novel, and he's re-releasing it, kind of like a a author's cut version, you know, director's cut. This is an author's version, author's cut version. I don't know what the terminology is. You know, I, I'd i like to believe that one day I will be a famous writer. And I don't even know. I'm, I'm still calling it director's cut. So whatever. Uh, but yeah. So Joseph Citro is going to be on to talk about. We're going to talk about this, this Lake Monsters book. We're going to talk about some champ action. Uh and in honor of Shark Week. But before all that, in honor of Shark Week, I want to read a Megalodon encounter from around 1918. Um, taken by a guy named David, David Stead uh, from an island off the coast of Australia. So we will get to all that right after a word from your sponsors. What is going on, everybody? It is me, Nicholas Withered, and I am here now to tell you to rate and review the show. We need it. We love it. We love you. All you got to do is rate that show. You rate that show. You get a hold of me. You tell me you rated the show, and I'll send you a free sticker. That is right. One free sticker for any and everyone who rates the show. Give me a five-star rating, a good review, and you'll have your free sticker. So, I couldn't keep that up. That was that was too much for me. But, uh, yeah. Like I say, we can't do it without you. Your ratings and reviews, they help the show go a long ways. Might not seem it, but it, you guys, these ratings and reviews... Uh, you can think of them as the backbone of Almost Canon. Uh, without these ratings and reviews, we can't walk. We can't run. And we can't fly. So we get enough of those ratings and reviews, and we can soar on out of here. Uh, and we'll be high enough for everybody to see us. So 
We need those ratings and reviews. You just jump on to, to uh, you know, Apple, Apple Podcast. Give us a rating there. Or if you're on, um, what's the other one there? If you're on Spotify, you've, you've listened to this episode long enough to be able to leave a rating there. So go ahead and do that. Either one doesn't matter. I know, you know, last time I checked, it was like 70% of, of podcasts are listened to on Apple Podcasts. So those ones are are the most important, but they're all very important. Um, whether you're listening to them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, which is going out of business. I don't care. Leave them on Stitcher if you can or whatever. You know, I don't even know. Pandora, I think, has podcasts. Whatever you're listening to them on. Leave a rating, leave a review. We'll appreciate it. You'll get a free sticker out of it. And also, if you have a story you want to share, just remember, we don't judge people on this show. We won't judge you. I have had my fair share of strange things happen to me. So if you're used to people telling you, I don't believe it, you're crazy, that never happened. Well, that won't happen if you tell me your story. Um... So go ahead, send me an email. I'd love to read it. And you can get a hold of me at almostcanonpod at gmail.com. You can send us an email or uh, you can send us a Facebook message at uh, Almost Canon Podcast Facebook page. Uh, I think we're on Instagram at Almost Canon Pod. Uh, I'm pretty sure you can send messages on there. So go ahead, jump on, send me your message. I'm not afraid to hear it. I'm not afraid to read it. And, you know, while I say I've got a crazy story for you that I'm, you know, I'm not saying you're crazy. What I'm saying is the story is unbelievable. However, because it's unbelievable doesn't mean it didn't happen or um, we don't believe it. It just it's you know, it's just a way of saying uh, this is out of this world. I can't believe this. This is this is nuts, you know. So it's it's a little it's a little ironic for the terminology uh, that we you know I it, I know it's not just me I hear other podcasters use the same stuff so if you have a a weird scary story uh, or something strange happened to you don't be afraid to share it you can get a hold of me at almostcanonpod at gmail you can send us a Facebook message at Almost Canon Podcast Facebook page. Um, we're on Instagram at Almost Canon Pod. I'm pretty sure you can send messages out there. Uh, we want to hear your stories. We won't judge you. We've had our own weird, scary, unbelievable stuff happen to us here at Almost Canon. So we want to hear your story too. Now let's get back to the show. All right. So before we get into Joseph Citro's Lake Monsters, I wanted to read a story um, taken from a man named David Stead. He he was he's an author of Sharks and Rays of the Australian Seas. Uh, and back in 1918, he spoke with several lobster men who were so frightened by, by what they saw, they refused to go back to their, you know, their fishing grounds. And this place was their favorite fishing grounds. Um, these Port Stevens fishermen have been fishing off the coast of Broughton Island, north of the port, 
for some time. And they had found that its waters provided the best lobster around. So this is this is why it was their favorite fishing spot, you know. Uh, but the last time they had gone out, they had seen a shark so large it was able to swallow lobster pots whole. It was able to swallow lobster pot after lobster pot. Uh, and this is a quote, mooring lines and all, unquote. Uh, a mooring line is like a, some sort of permanent anchor that's attached to. So, so, so when they say mooring line, they were these anchors attached to some sort of chain or, you know, large thick rope that was then attached to these lobster pots that kind of kept them from just drifting throughout the ocean. So apparently the shark ate several pots in a row. Uh, and, and I think he had made mention to these pots. He, he said the exact uh, diameter of these pots, but they were like three feet by three feet or four feet by four feet or something. They were quite large pots. Uh, and this shark was just like, hump, hump, hump. Or maybe he just took them all in, in one one mouthful. He just held his mouth open as he swam. I, I don't know. It, it didn't it didn't say. But yeah, so they, they said it was it was large enough to swallow uh, lobster pot after lobster pot, mooring lines and all. Uh, oh, yeah, here, here we go. Here we go. It says. And these lobster pots were three and a half feet in diameter and were usually filled with two to three dozen what they call crayfish, uh, what those crazy Aussies call crayfish. Uh, we would know as lobsters, you know, crayfish are in our fresh water lobsters that are that are a hell of a lot tinier unless you're from tasmania and then they're a hell of a lot bigger um so yeah and and these 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 lobsters or these crayfish that i'll just call them crayfish because they call them crayfish they weighed about two pounds a piece so and there were two to three dozen crayfish and this is this is 1918 so they're you know this is before we we fished the seas nearly dry so there was plenty of lobsters back then. Uh, and this beast would just swallow them whole. So it's a pretty big shark. Uh, David Stead would collect local. He, he'd go out and he'd collect local fisheries inspector. Uh, I had I had the guy's name here, but it looks like my notes are, are all messed up. Would collect a local fisheries inspector. And the two began interviewing each lobsterman separately. It became, it quickly became evident that the size of this shark was incredible. One crew member said it was about as long as the wharf they were standing on, which was just over 110 feet. While another stated it had been uh, 90 meters, 90 meters, a 90 meter shark. Do you have any idea? Off the top of your head, how long 90 meters is? Well, I'll tell you, it's 300 feet. It's about 300 feet. Uh, so this shark was 300 feet long. Uh, I think that guy might have exaggerated just a little bit. Uh, one of the lobster men told Stead that the head of the beast, and I quote, at least as long as the roof on the wharf shed at Nelson's Bay. However long that, you know, however long that was. I've never been in Nelson's Bay, so I don't know how long the roof is on, on top of the shed there. But uh, it must have been pretty long. Um, 
They would all agree that the water boiled when the fish would swim by just below the surface or just before it rose from the water and that the shark was a ghoulish white color. Uh, and I just want to add, since then, I've heard another story, uh, which was actually told by Bobo, Bobo Fay of Finding Bigfoot. And he talked about a shark encounter that he had. And he also said the water boiled. And I, I'm not I'm not exactly sure what that means. But this guy was talking about. Uh, these guys were talking about water boiling beneath them as the shark rose. So uh, I just imagine that it, the water was just like <laughs> flying all over the place. Uh, both Mr. Patton. So that's the fisheries guy. Both Mr. Patton and David Stead believed the man had seen something as the fear they saw within the lobster men's eyes uh, was real. I also wrote this note down that uh, on this other podcast, they were talking about Bobo was talking about uh, he tells a, a quick story. Ah, never mind. I don't I don't I'm not concluding that. But uh, but yeah, so that's the. Uh, that's the Megalodon encounter from uh, Port Stevens. So, I don't know. You know, it happened over 100 years ago. Some people say Megalodon still exists. Some people say it doesn't. You know, there's other stories. Sometimes I tried to find some, you know, some modern encounters that that weren't from the Discovery Channel, but I couldn't. Uh, it was actually a lot more difficult than I thought. When I looked on YouTube, there were all these old ass stories like this one. But uh, I mean, it's still it's not a bad story. It's it, like I believe these guys and I I lived over 100 years after they told this story. So do with it as you will. Be careful while swimming in the ocean. So, yeah, let's get to the main attraction. Let's talk to Keeper of the Lore, Master of Vermont Horror. Vermont's very own Stephen King. He is the one, the only Joseph Citro in his latest edition of Lake Monsters. Nick, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. I just got to turn the lights on in here. It's a little dark. Hold on. Okay. I'm in the process of moving, so it's a little little messy oh very cool yeah i just bought my first house so oh nice going yep <laughs> a man is not a man until he owns property <laughs> yeah i mean it's the house is pretty big uh but it's you know maybe got like half an acre of land or what you know just a little backyard but well, uh i think there's a lot of unexplored wonders at bellows falls and you can dig into those. So, and it's it's a wonderfully photogenic town. I I bring my camera every time I go there. Yeah, one thing that that I was amazed at when I found found it out that there used to be like a five star hotel on the island there, uh, right. and by the waterfall. Yeah, I never, I never even, you know, you would never think that. No, and it's long gone, but there there are pictures of it. The 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 historical society there is quite active and they can 
they can fill you in on a lot of stuff. Yeah, it's really cool. It's a good spot to metal detect, I think. <laughs> yeah, I bet so. Um, you know, they, um, I can't remember who did it, but somebody unearthed a giant there. Mm. When, and it would be roughly around 1850 because they were putting in the railroad. And there's some confusion about whether the, the giant was found on the Bellows Falls side or on the New Hampshire side. Yeah. And it's vanished, although it was written up in a number of places. And apparently it was exhibited in the window of a drugstore in downtown Bellows Falls. I'm not quite sure which one or anything like that, but it's fascinating. Yeah. Where would you like to start this? From the beginning, probably? I think I made a false start on the novel in probably the early 80s and then decided I couldn't write a novel and put it away for a while. And then picked it up again. And I I, I promised myself I wouldn't get distracted or discouraged, that mm. I would just slam right through it from the beginning to the end. And frankly, um, when I started it, I didn't know where it was going. So I was kind of exploring it along with the reader. Um, all I knew was that I had some things that were really interesting to me at that time. And I wanted to weave those together into a, into a story. So I had, I had several um, separate components and the job of writing the novel was to try to try to connect those. And those were, um, I was real interested in the possibility that there was some unknown critter in Lake Champlain that really interested me. And I really, I, between my false start and my real start, I, I spent a lot of time researching it. I was living in Burlington at that time, so I could go down to the lake or anywhere on uh, along the shore, um, the Vermont shore, and just sit down with my binoculars and camera and hope something would happen. It didn't. But <laughs> I, <laughs> I thought about it enough and I did enough research and I, I reached out to probably the the most well-known champ researcher at that time, a guy by the name of Joe Zarzinski. Does that name ring a bell with you? He uh, was I've heard of it. I've heard he of was it. First. He, he was really the first. He was the the trailblazer in the in the champ department. And he he lives lived in uh, New York at that time. But he was coming to Vermont almost every summer. Um to investigate. And he had a lot of people who were similarly interested in crypt cryptids. Mm. Um, and probably the one whose name you would immediately recognize would be Lauren Coleman. Mm -hmm. Lauren was interested in that. Now this was pre Scott Martis. This was right. pre the new the new crop of champ researchers. This guy was Zarzinski was a real trailblazer. And I, I spent a lot of time with him and in a way, you might say the character in the book was somewhat patterned on him because he he was very scientific in his approach. He didn't start with the idea that there definitely was an unknown creature in the lake. He started with the idea that there might be something unknown in the lake. And he, he, he approached it from that point of view. And all his research was absolutely credible. Um he even admitted in a 
in an interview I did with him that he thought he had a sighting, but he wasn't too public about it because it was not, it, it wasn't definite. Right. So that that's one component of this book, the the, the possibility of a cryptid in the lake, the, the familiar, familiarity with a guy who is really scientifically looking for that, for it. And an, another thing that was really interesting to me at that time was um, certain historical um, aspects of Vermont having to do with um, unusual religious affiliations. Um, probably the most conspicuous, there, there were a lot of little cults and, and groups in Vermont that were embracing peculiar notions about life and the afterlife, but the, the most conspicuous among them was probably um, um, spiritualists. During the late 19th century, early early 20th century, spiritualism was very a very active belief system. And there were a lot of practicing spiritualists around. And they were all proselytizing and trying to bring more, um, more people into the group, as religious people will do. And uh, um, it occurred to me that if... If they were really onto something, why would they want to share it? People are basically selfish and self-serving. So if 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 there was a group of spiritualists who happened to lock into something that nobody else had 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 come across, um, they'd probably keep it to themselves and they'd mm -hmm. go about their business secretly. They'd um, they'd remove themselves from society and 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 do their thing. So those. Those were two ideas that I was sort of playing off each other. And then there was this, and the third idea, I guess, was this this um, sort of mid-1980s angst-ridden guy that had lost his girlfriend and lost his job, and his life was falling apart, and he wanted to be the one to prove that there's a monster in the lake. You want to be the guy to prove it, to scientifically establish it. So he comes to Vermont and moves to this island called Friars Island, which I made up. There's, yeah. There is no Friars Island. It looks a little bit suspiciously like Isle Mott, but it's it's not really Isle of Mott. It's just a, something I created. And I, I think I created it somewhat, somewhat convincingly because I got to... <laughs> a really kind of testy letter from a woman who said she and some of her friends have been driving around and all day in the Champlain Islands looking for Friars Island. They couldn't <laughs> find it. And I said, well, you know, just be glad you didn't. I definitely think you, you, uh, it was quite convincing. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Well, it's, it's kind of a, um, a romantic notion. The, the idea of the, of an island in Vermont, you know, where there's a little self-contained community, and and yeah. uh, and and that's why the school teacher was there too. She was, she would, she she had been escaping an unsuccessful relationship, and she had gone there to to teach in the the island's one room schoolhouse. And so these are all kind of romantic notions, and yeah. and good for good for novel building, you know. I mean, what did it for me was the history that you built into the island it wasn't just like one layer it, mm. it went like down and down and down and then it kind of uh the community 
on the island kind of built off of all those layers. So yeah. it, it seemed real, like like that was a real place. Yeah, well, thank you. I, I, I you know, it, it was, um, you know, I, I, I'm pretty happy with it as a first novel, you know. Um, I, I think I, you know, I worked hard on it. I think it's, it's sort of successful. It was never a bestseller, and um, it did okay over, over the over its life. It did okay, but you know, it's it, it's not for everybody. It's a novel for people who like suspense and supernatural stories and cryptid stories, but that's not too many of us. I think I think the audience for that kind of thing is is bigger now mm. than when I wrote it. Yeah, the, the, the world has changed since I think that came out in 1986 or 87 originally, and and it's gone. It's had let's see, it's had three publications, I guess. I think I'm on the third edition, and it'll probably be the last because um, it's it's not only the book. I don't I don't know if you read the one that that I'm talking about, but um, let's see if I can. Uh, well first one thing I wanted to say going all the way back to the beginning uh, of what we just were talking about how you had you you were kind of just going with the flow as you as you as you wrote um, and that that makes that makes me feel good because when I write like a I mean, I'm not, I'm not a published writer or anything, but I, I, I have writ, wrote some, a novel, uh, and that's kind of what I did. You know, I had a beginning, and I, I kind of had like an end scene created, and then I just kind of filled in the rest. You know. Yeah, well, it's, you know, everybody, who, everybody has to find his or her own way to do it, and none of us, I think, each of us is entering a unfamiliar foreign land. The minute we start working on the first page of a novel, we don't, none of us know what we're doing and we have to sort of find our own way. And the book, I, you know, I know so many writers and they all do it in a different way. Like I have a friend named Jim Filippi who's written a bunch of novels and he, he outlines them all on index cards. <laughs> and um, I don't do that. I don't, I don't even outline. I just let my, my, my subconscious go to work right and and i think i've become confident that if i can get a if i start writing and keep writing and get a beginning a middle and an end then i then i've got all i need and i can keep working on that i i actually when i wrote that novel first i did you know it sounds sort of ominous but i i did 13 complete drafts of that novel mm. And I know that because I wasn't working on a computer. I was working on a, a typewriter. Right. Wow. And, uh, and, and so the, the the drafts would pile up. <laughs> so, I, you know, I wrote it a lot of times. I worked really hard on it. So, and I was learning I mean, as I went. So this is the, this is the one. I don't know if you can see that. I can't tell if I'm holding this in the right place. Can you, can you see that novel? No, I mean, I still, I, I still have a, your name is the only thing I can see. So, uh, well, but, it's, oh, I think I don't think I got the new one. It it says uh, I don't think, uh, 2012. Yeah, well, that's like what ten years old. 
right. 20 years old, something like that. Oh, I feel bad. Yeah. Well, you didn't get you didn't get a lot of material because there's a lot of supplementary material. But you know what? I could I could send it to you. Um, I could send you. In fact, I, I had planned to do this, but I just I, I, I neglected it when you said you picked up a copy. But I was going to send you um, a PDF of the thing if you promise not to share it with anyone. And you could you could then look at all the extras. Mm, right. I'd be happy to do that. Mm. Yeah, that'd be sweet. If I remember. Might right. Have to nudge me. <laughs> right. Um, I don't know if you want to take a second and and we can talk about Champ. How yeah. does that sound? Because I know the when when I don't know if this is a spoiler or not, so I can take it out. You can you can let me know. But when you pick up the book, right, and you you're looking at it, and it says Lake Monsters in Vermont, automatically, you know, it's like Champ. Mm -hmm. So, well, yeah. Let me let me talk about that. Yeah, um, my that Lake Monsters was not my title for the book. Oh, and when it was originally published. Um, my my title for the book was "Of Woman Born." No, it wasn't. I take that back. I'm mixing up my uh, I'm mixing up my books. Well, you got two. so many of them. <laughs> take two. My, my my original title for this book was "The Monster Hunter," which oh, to this yes. day I think is a better title. Right and and, at the at the very end. Sorry, at the very end. Of the one that I got, there's like a, a writer's notes or something, and it says that. Yeah, you got the University Press of New England edition, I believe. So that wasn't the first. The first, the first, it was first published by Warner Books, but yeah. they changed they changed the title from The Monster Hunter to of all things Dark Twilight, which made absolutely no sense to me at all. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> as opposed to what light twilight, it has nothing to do with anything. And that was, and publishers love to do that. They like to, they like to seize control of something. And one of the ways they do that is by changing titles. Hmm. They they don't like they don't like the monster hunter. So I wanted to re re reestablish that title when University Press of New England picked up the uh, the reprint. And they didn't like the Monster Hunter either. So huh. so they called it Lake Monsters. And I didn't want to further confuse the issue, so I just left that title. But I, I'm not totally happy with that. But it does make a certain amount of sense. So I'll go with that. Mm. More than uh, Dark Twilight. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so I didn't know if you wanted to talk about Champ. Uh, I know I sent you that thing and a million other people probably sent it to you. The, uh, the sonar image that. Yeah. I I've been, I, I don't research quite as actively as I did it for, for quite a while. Um, so I'm a little bit behind in my champ chasing. Um, I, I, I don't know what to make of that image because okay. I'm I'm always a little bit on my guard. I'm I'm very skeptical. And you know, I refuse to say there is no critter out there, but I also refuse to be fooled. 
Right. I would take, I'd, I'd want to take a close look at that and know a little bit more about its background because that image, as good and suggestive as it is, would be really easy to fake. And I, I'm not saying the guy faked it. All I'm saying is I don't know. And who knows? Um, I, I would... I've I've asked around a little bit to see if anybody knows the people involved, and I, I haven't I haven't connected with anybody who actually does. So yeah. it might be it might be a it might be a trick. It might be on the level. I know he's I know he's got a he's a fishing guide first mm -hmm. of all. Mm -hmm. He's got a an outfitter company. Um, and I I read an article where they were there was some big school of bait fish and all these other you know they were catching these lake trout that were eating the the bait fish and they were getting all these other you know fairly large fish that were all kind of converging on this 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 school of bait fish and yeah. then that that showed up so i mean the story sounds plausible oh, absolutely it does absolutely but why would anyone make one up that didn't right. um <laughs> I, I and I don't mean to disparage the guy. All I'm saying is I don't know, and and I would want to, you know, I'd want to take another look at it before. Um, yeah, there've yeah. been there has been in the history of the lake. There's been a lot of tomfoolery, a lot of fakes. Um, mm. There's a guy. Um, I'm trying to think of his name. His last name is Bartholomew, and I think. It, I'm I'm forgetting his first name, but he wrote a whole skeptical book about Champ, which is really one of the best books ever written because he goes back into history and documents all the uh, all the fakes and all the mistakes and all the possibilities, and oh. then you know he's got a core of sightings that are possibly really unknown animals, but um, right. yeah, yeah. I, I just I can't remember his name, but. Um, I think yeah. I might have that book. Yeah, good because it's worth it's worth a a good read. I think I went to uh, Echo the Echo Center one, a couple years back, and I talked with uh, one of the head. Oh, I forget. Of course, I forget what her name is now too. And I, I'm pretty sure she gave me that book, um, because she showed me the the they have the the actual Mansi photo there and everything, you know. So she showed me that, and I'm pretty sure she gave me that book. But of course, I packed everything up because yeah. I'm in the process of moving, so I can't. I don't have it right here in front of me. But uh, yeah. Well, you know, the the Mansi photo is the best evidence, but it's not without layers mm -hmm. of doubt. Um, I fr frankly, to me, um, it, it it has never looked convincing. To me, it looks right. like somebody swimming with his with his arm up in the air. Right. I mean, I think. <laughs> Every year that goes by, mm. I'm more and more convinced that. Have you heard of the upside down tree trunk theory? Um, I I took a picture of a tree trunk that looks just like Champ. Right. I have a file of pictures of things that are not Champ. <laughs> so yeah, I guess I I've never heard it called that, but yeah. Yeah, it's like a yeah, like a tree trunk upside down, and the roots are you know. Mm -hmm. uh, and one of them's out of the water. And some somebody I saw a picture that somebody drew and it looks exactly like that. Like it could match up perfectly. I don't know. As the years go by, I, I'm kind of going towards that theory. 
but I'm also not one who believes in the the plesiosaur, you know, long neck dinosaur theory. You know, yeah. could be anything. Could be a long neck seal. It could be. Uh, I I I have no idea what it is, but it. I and and frankly, um, to be honest with you, I just assume that it's never found. I'd rather keep the. The, the curiosity and the speculation and the sense of adventure and wonder alive right and say okay well it's a you know it's another leatherback turtle or whatever and the, the magic is gone i've been rather yeah. keep the magic right I, I i've known um i i i miss uh scott martis i i think he was really a good honest researcher and he really wanted there to be a critter in the lake he really wanted that and and he and but he wasn't willing to say it was there he was just willing to say that he thinks it's there and he wants to find it mm. and he he made a real effort he did a whole tv series um investigating that and other nautical wonders that he produced himself on on community television years ago. And I you've probably come across him in some context, right? Oh, so, yeah. yeah. Yep. And um he he even did a did an essay for my publication, um, the newest edition of Lake Monsters. Scott was working on an essay for that book. And his 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 assignment was to evaluate the cryptozoological elements of the story. Because I, I tried to, you know, I tried to keep that consistent with theory and the science of the whole thing as much as I could. And so his job was to was to look at that critically. Mm. And it's the sad part of it is that um well, there's a lot of sad parts of it, but the in terms of the the book, he he had done a draft of this essay, but it needed some editing. So he was going to, so I gave him, I gave him my editorial suggestions and he was going to take care of it when he got back from his last trip to the lake. And it was right after that, that he died. He never, he never got to do the editorial touch up. It wasn't anything major. It was just a little touch up here and there. He, I mean, he, he was very much in control of his subject matter, but he wasn't, he, he, you know, he wasn't real practiced writing for a popular audience. So, um, so anyway, I I took the liberty of fixing some of the stuff and left some of it alone and just wrote wrote what happened. So he's his essay is in the book and it's probably his his last published essay. Which, so anyway, he he's a good guy. Yeah, I mean, I never met him. Never, I never was. I never uh, was able to talk to him or anything. But I, I definitely know who he is. Well, he would have he would have gone out of his way to help you because that's just the way he was. He was very generous with his time and with his research, and he was he was a pretty good guy. But you know, he would if he thought somebody was a wacko, he'd say so, <laughs> and, and he was very very direct, and he wasn't. Yeah, I'm very fond of Scott, so I don't I don't want any of this to sound as if I'm putting him down, but he wasn't really highly polished. 
he probably knew more about champ and aquatic animals than most people with a with a college degree but he was entirely self-taught he was amazing yeah. amazingly motivated and a wealth of information and just just a little rougher on the edges but um and and occasionally that would come out as a lack of diplomacy in certain conversations but that's more a strength than a weakness i think and kind of a lot like me i think i mean <laughs> i think um <laughs> any anybody who's ever seen him on on i mean i i know him from all tv all these different tv he was on all the know, time, yeah. tv shows you know so I know him from there, and I think anybody who who had ever seen him would probably say the same thing. But he was he was always there, and he he knew everything. Yeah. If if you wanted to know something about the lake, you that that was the guy you went to. Yeah, and he wasn't one to really search for opportunities to be on camera. He knew enough so that people came to him. He did. He wasn't uh, he wasn't trying to flag down the mm. passing camera crew. You know, he was he was. Um, so anyway, he was um, that last. I guess he was here. You know, I I was um, I was ill while, while Scott was here, and uh, I was just coming down with whatever it is that I have now. And I w I really wanted to go to the lake and spend at least some time with him, but I just I was too sick to do it. So I mean, we just missed each other in so many ways, and um, I, I I feel sort of bad about that. I wish I had had a chance to see him off as it were hmm. but he he was at the lake he put in his last monster hunt or tramp quest or whatever you want to call it <laughs> and then he went home with a terrible infection that he'd been carrying around and i guess they learned that he had they had to amputate his leg and in so doing he died i guess oh, wow. he died on the operating table or shortly afterwards very sad story yeah um, I'm just trying to bring up my notes here really quick. See what I can f bring up. Uh, let's see here. I took some notes while I was reading along there. Um, I don't know how much you want to get in into it either. So I'm just if if you don't want to talk about this, uh. I can always take it out, but I, I, I liked the, the whole prologue. It wasn't very long, you know, uh, but there was a part that stuck out to me that I liked. And that was uh, one of the, and it was one of like the nursemaids or, or something was talking about telling stories of uh, the old Indian stories of the lake monster. I thought that was. Yeah. A good... yeah thank you. Yeah. I like that too. It was kind of a framing device because it, it sets the reader up. And I'm saying this is a story. <laughs> you know, this is don't believe this. This is a story. Um, <laughs> it's just a story. And then and then we tell the story of the guy looking for the monster. Oh, and another thing I I that you specifically mentioned uh were, were big eels. Um and I thought that was very important because if you like throughout history, pretty much up until the surgeon's photo, I think was in like the 1920s. You know, all these lake monsters were described as eel-like, like giant eels. And then right. they made the swap over to, you know, these plesiosaur-like creatures. So I thought that was that was a real good touch. 
Well, I, I that's that's you know I didn't make that up. That's actually one of the uh, one of the theories about what champ might be. Mm. And um, you know if 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 it's just its head coming out of the water, I suppose it could be described as somewhat eel-like. But there there are these stories about giant eels in Vermont lakes, and um, there was a a scientist from Plattsburgh who was diving in Lake Champlain and reported having seen what to him looked like giant eels, you know, as big as telephone poles. And um, his name was Rains, I think. And he was somebody who was interested in the whole question of, of champ. And I'm sort of forgetting what his first name is, but he should be pretty easy to find. Um, and then there's this story about, this is a great story. And it's about Lake Willoughby mm. and people seeing giant eels in the lake there and um there's a there's a story about a, a an airplane that crashed into lake willoughby or maybe maybe it was a boat that sank there whatever um but the guy the owner of the plane or boat was in the navy so they sent navy divers to look for direct and the body mm -hmm. and while they were down there they saw these giant eels um yeah supposedly supposedly they took pictures of the eels and copies of the pictures were left at a safe in westmore yeah. and i i tried to track those down um my first book of vermont stories um has the a whole account out of that episode and i i got as far as the westmore store store and i got mm -hmm. as far as the guy who owned the store at that time but nothing about photographs of giant eels yeah. now i suspect that's the truth i suspect you know i suspect somebody did crash a boat or a plane in the lake i suspect divers actually did come one of them might have seen a big eel and from there and forevermore the size of that eel grew and grew and grew and people <laughs> would add other details like well the navy divers got pictures and they stored them at the general store blah 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 um i just don't know what to believe i'd like to believe it's true but i've never seen any particularly gigantic eels i used to fish in the lake quite a bit i caught a few eels they're creepy things yeah um, <laughs> not, not that big no, I mean, I've never seen a giant eel either, but it seems, you know, all these historical stories from the 1800s, you know, they all talk about giant eels or serpent creatures. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They call it a sea, in the uh, 19th century, they most uh, most frequently referred to Champ as a sea, sea serpent, the yeah. sea serpent of Lake Champlain, that's like, but um, we... I, I preferred monster. I like the Lake Champlain monster. Yeah. But we've made it <laughs> champ and he's he's our pal and he smiles and doesn't want to hurt anybody. But uh I uh I talked to Annette Spaulding once yeah. about, about Lake Willoughby. Um well actually I'll I'll preface this before before that. I'll say I talked to a couple people who 
my wife's got a, has a friend whose husband lived on the shores of Lake Willoughby when, you know, growing up. And he says, I'm pretty sure, like, I, I want to say I talked to him. I'm pretty sure I, if I can remember properly, he said that um, he had gone out on like a canoe once, you know, and something happened. He didn't say what it was. He just, you know, he, he was just like, and I'll never go back out on in a canoe again. So, um, and I had talked to Annette Spaulding and she, she had dove the waters of Lake Willoughby and apparently yeah. long tunnels under there that just go and go and that you have to be very careful. They've almost like her and her partner have almost died uh, going into the tunnels because they're so twisty and they're so long. And I don't, I don't know, but it's weird. I, yeah. It, it, people used to think that there was a tunnel connecting uh, Lake Mem from Agog and Lake Willoughby. That there was, mm. you know, then, and they, it, there's been this story about, I think it was the mayor of Newport or something like that who drowned in the lake from Agog and then they pulled his body out of Lake Willoughby. I think, I think that's the story. But anyway, I, I'm, I'm losing my connection here. Can you still hear me? I can hear you. Yeah. I heard it go a little weird a couple of times. Um, yeah. There's one thing I wanted to cover really quick. Then. I'm wondering if we got to go. Yeah. Uh, I know, and I can take this out too, but you had talked in the book, you had talked about the the Charlotte whale, right? Isn't that what it's called? Yeah. Yeah. I thought that was interesting because you can go yeah. to. Uh... Yeah. They've even made a friend of that and they just call it Charlotte, <laughs> Charlotte the whale. But yeah, it's, it's from Charlotte. That's where they found it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can go to the it... Echo Center and you can see it. It's interesting and it, it's cool how how the lake was all attached to the ocean at one point. Well, that whale is, you know, I was disappointed um, the first time I saw it because it was so small. Mm. I wanted a big monstrous thing. And right. I mean, that was, would have been a pretty small whale. But, yeah. yeah I mean, that was, Is that at the Echo Center now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've seen it there. That's where I've seen it. Hmm. I think it's just a a replica is what it is. Um, well, is is it just a skeleton or is it a? Yeah, it's just a skeleton. Because that was at the Perkins Geological Museum at UVM for years, and I I don't even know if that museum exists anymore. I'm pretty sure the the original one is somewhere else. It's in some other museum. The Echo Center just has like a replica of this the skeleton. But it gives it's probably to scale, and so you could get an idea how big it was. Yeah, it looks it looks real. It looks like like that was a real animal at one point, you know. But um, is there anything you wanted to talk about before, in case we can't get back together? What What if you got lined up for programs? And well, I I think I told you I'm talking with uh Alex, uh on the ninth. And this next week, I'm going to be talking. There's a guy coming to Springfield to talk about Bigfoot. Um, I'm going to be talking to him. Where, where is he going to be talking about Bigfoot in Springfield? At the at the library on the first. Huh. Wonder who that is. His name is. I got it right here. Of course, it just disappeared. Michael. Oh, come on. 
Jeez, huh. I might have to get up for that. I'd like to hear him. Yeah, he's got a web. He's got a website called uh, shadowofredeye.com. Mm. Uh, Michael, what's his? Uh, sorry. I, I, it doesn't matter. Um, I was just curious, but I, I got to find out about this because I might, I might drive up to Springfield to hear that. Yeah, I got the date right here. Uh, Springfield Library, six p.m. to seven p.m. on eight one twenty three. So coming right up yeah it is i know i was uh trying to get him on sooner but he's he's pretty busy so well good and and who who was the guy i've got it i made a note of it when you told me but the guy that was the the treasure hunter that had looked for the treasure in bristol uh, yep uh brad martin he's coming on again too but we're going to talk about like lost treasure or you know nothing that's been found <laughs> yeah um yeah and he has a web page uh i think yeah i don't know what it is off the top of my head i can i can get it for you it's either a facebook page or a website i think um well i'm gonna be i'm gonna be writing a a chapter in these books that I'm doing with Robert Brunel about treasures. So it'd probably be good to talk to somebody who's actually actively thinking about treasures and looking at treasures. So. Right. Yeah. He did a whole, yeah. I think I told you before, he did a whole thing on the, on the uh, Bristol treasure and he like debunked it all. Yeah. But uh, it's pretty de debunkable. Yeah. I mean, he did a, a deep dive on it. He went, he went everywhere. <laughs> looked into all three different there's like you know three stories they're all very similar he looked into all of them uh went to all the locations talked yeah. to all the people yeah he'd be a good i'd like to talk to him at some point yeah i think I, I told them about you uh and that you'd be contacting him but I, i'll i'll send you his information i'll remind him yeah that'd be good and i i know i've got i wrote it down but it's not in front of me right now well, I just assume call it quits for tonight, but why don't you see if you've got enough? And if you don't, um, we can just get together and fill in the blanks. It's like writing a novel, you know? No, I, th I think that's enough. Uh, it pretty much covers, you know, the book without getting into too much spoiler territory. So it would be a lot of fun to talk to some people who had read it. You know who knew knew what was coming and and have a dialogue with them um, about how it was all set up and stuff. But I I just don't want to throw it out there right now. Right. You know the bookstore in Chester um, that's going to be closing. I heard, and that's very sad. I I heard that they for whatever reason the owner is not renewing the the lease. Oh, I heard that too. So that that's that's unfortunate. That's kind of sort of iconic in the village. They really need a bookstore. Um, yeah. Um, but then I, I think I might have heard that they were moving into another building with someone else. But I don't know. I might have just made that up. Uh, yeah, I, I I hope that's the case. But you know that bookstore has been there as a bookstore for quite a while. Right. It's having it there. So been there at least as long as I've been alive. I know that much.
Well, it it had opened not too long before my first novel came out, and that was 1986. So when were you born? 91. God, you're just a kid. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank, thank you. And uh, No, thank you. In touch. Good luck with everything. I'm very happy to hear about your move. That's terrific. You're going oh. to keep the same job and everything, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Good. Okay, Nick, take care. All right. Thank you for coming on. Hope you feel better. Thank you. Bye. Bye. All right. That was uh, Joseph Citro, once again, master of Vermont horror, keeper of the lore, some would say, uh, tamer of ghosts. No, wait, 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 wait. Tamer of Monsters and uh, Collector of Ghosts. But yeah, Joseph Citro and his book, Lake Monsters, or as he would like to call it, The Monster Hunter. Both fitting titles. The Monster Hunter, probably a little better. But like he said, publisher... Chose the name. Lake Monsters is fine. Uh, so he's put out, um, you know, this third edition. I apparently got, you know, I thought I got the third one, but apparently I got an older one. So there's more to the story that I missed. But I did read the book for him. And if you're a fan of Joseph Citro, if you're a fan of Vermont Horror, of New England horror. Um, if you're a fan of Stephen King, this is definitely along the lines of a, of a of a Stephen King novel. So you can, I know you can get the older copy on Audible if you're interested in that. You can, um, he's selling the third edition in your local bookstores, most likely. If you live here in Vermont, you know, every town seems to have a local bookstore. Go down there, pick up a copy of Lake Monsters. Um, Joseph Citro would appreciate it. I think he even said you could. He got off awfully quick. He, I know he wasn't feeling well, so he he did mention you could pick the book up at Amazon. Um, he has mentioned that a lot of village bookstores have copies of Lake Monsters. So if you're interested, stop by your local bookstore, go on Amazon. You can pick up your copy today. Give it a read. Rate it. If you're if you're listening on Audible, give it a rating. Go out. Pick up your copy of Lake Monsters. You'll enjoy it. I'd enjoyed it. It's great. It's definitely got a twist you'll never see coming. Um I'm not spoiling it for you tonight. Maybe next time. Not tonight. It's a great summer read. And it definitely sounds almost canon to me. 